0: Well, this is the final conference. You can rejoice at that, in any case. uh, Uh, I wanted to devote quite a bit of time, uh, this uh, retreat, with the conferences I had, to the virtue of prudence for a particular reason, and and that is um, our Lord demands prudence of us, especially in difficult times. St. Paul says, walk circumspectly mindful of the times because the times are evil. And that's certainly true in our day. So certainly prudence is required of us in our own day. Um, You know, the word prudence comes from the uh, Latin word providere. Providere. The words for Latin meaning forward and to look, or to see, to look forward. And uh, we have the word provide. Provide comes from providere. Uh, providence, as in divine providence, comes from providere. That God provides, as as Abraham said when he was going at the mountain to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And Isaac asked, well, Father, we have the wood and we have the torch with the fire and everything else we need. But where is the victim? Of course, Isaac did not know that he was the designated victim. And Abraham's answer was simply, God will provide. And so we must have that confidence today that God will provide. In God's prudence, he does provide. With that divine prudence that only God can have because he knows the entire picture from beginning to end of all history. You and I don't know that, but we do have access to it through the through the Holy Ghost. And actually the Holy Ghost speaks to us in a certain way, and I think that's something we need to be more aware of, because we're going to need that we're going to need that contact, we're going to need that guidance. Now, today we have the Feast of St. John the Baptist. And St. John the Baptist was definitely a man's man. You might say that he was definitely off the grid. If there was anything resembling a grid in those days, he was definitely off it. Living out in the desert, living on wild honey and locusts, kind of the way the World Economic Forum would like us all to live in the future. Uh, sort of that rough desert life, owing owning nothing but being happy, but what made John the Baptist happy was his service of God, that he was actually kind of like an angel sent before the Son of God, the Savior, to prepare the way before him. He was the precursor of our Lord, as you know, the forerunner, literally, but he was also something of an angel in a sense as a great messenger of God, calling the people of Israel to repentance, preparing them to receive the one who could actually grant them forgiveness for their sins. But first, before they could be forgiven, they had to repent. And that was St. John the Baptist's message. Even with his baptism, he could not afford the forgiveness of sins. All he could do was stir up The the regret and the contrition for sin and the desire for forgiveness. And then give them to our Lord who alone could grant them forgiveness. So, in a sense, uh, you know, John the Baptist was serving the purpose or filling the role of kind of an angel going before our Lord to prepare the way for him. You remember, though, St. John the Baptist own birth was foretold by an angel. The angel Gabriel appeared to his father Zachary, while Zachary was filling the chorus of the high priest that called for his, his family uh, actually serving in the temple. And Zach, well, Zachary was actually fulfilling that role. Designated for that time is when he had the apparition of the angel Gabriel telling him that he and his wife, Elizabeth, would finally have a child, a son. And Zachary, as you know, did not believe. He thought it was, well, he was very skeptical, to say the least. And because of that, the angel sealed his mouth. The angel said his punishment would be that he would be mute all that time of John the Baptist's gestation. And that's how it was, as you know, is. His lips were only unsealed after he wrote the words, His name is John. He will be called John. And once he gave that name to his son, then he could speak once again. So the angel himself actually could inflict that penalty on on Zachary for failing to believe the word of God at that point. Now, uh, that's important for us to know for certain reasons, because uh, the angels do have powers to inflict or enact a certain punishment from us for our failures, but always for our good, always for our good. One thing you see in the lives of the saints, there's, there uh, are a set of certain common similarities they have. For example, if you go back in the lives of the saints and you review them, they, they all have... Uh, a a devotion to the Holy Eucharist. They recognize their Lord and Savior present in the Holy Eucharist. And they have a great devotion to Him there. Uh, They all have a a caring for the the actual poor, the poor who are really in need. And when they see someone really in need, their heart goes out to them and they do give of their own substance. So they have a charity of love for God and love for their neighbor but another characteristic of the saints something that you and i again need to share with them if we're going to join them and that is a devotion to their guardian angels so many of the saints spoke of their guardian angels and recommended to us a very clear uh, consciousness and awareness of our guardian angels i don't know that we have that Uh, maybe i'm speaking for myself but I just get the impression that our traditional Catholic people, although they believe in guardian angels, and they believe they have guardian angels, I don't know if they're really aware. And what I mean by that is, other than saying the prayer, angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love commits to be here every day, if they really are very much aware of that divine presence through the guardian angel in their daily lives. And we really need to work on that. Be much more aware of that, especially going forward. Um, And so I thought it would be a good idea to take a listen to what some of the angels, what some of the saints tell us about the guardian angels, and how they should apply, that should apply to us. But uh, also I wanted to talk about the idea of that guardian angel's influence in our lives. I mentioned that uh, the two hundred and twenty eight of the two hundred and twenty eight times angels are mentioned as such in the uh, in the Bible there are seventy two books in the Bible you know there is one book in which they are mentioned fifty times and I mentioned that's the last book of the Bible the book of the apocalypse a disproportionate number of times are concentrated, the mentions of the angels are mentioned in the last book of the Bible, concerning the last times of the world's history. And uh, as I mentioned yesterday, I think there's a reason for that, that we can actually figure out. It could possibly be that the angelic warfare between the good angels and the bad angels, the angels who were willing to humble themselves to the service of God, as opposed to those who refused to do so out of pride and rebelled, that that angelic warfare that we think of as being at the beginning of creation, and it was, will also intensify here on earth at the end of this world. <coughs> that that clash of the angels in their wills will be also going on here as the world progresses, or regresses, and we approach the end times in the world, perhaps the angels will be here on this earth, duking it out again, as it were, and fighting with us and for us, because we're going to be the battleground on not only our earth, but our souls. So it wouldn't be at all surprising to find that as we're invoking St. Michael the Archangel and our guardian angels, That we're actually gearing up, as it were, for a uh, rather apocalyptic battle that is definitely going to come at some time and possibly is looming even now. And in this case we would expect to see more and more the influence of the angels around us and in us and we should call upon them to stand with us and fight with us, fight for us, You know, you go back to Exodus chapter 23, the second book of the Bible. This is after Moses gave the people the Ten Commandments and established a new covenant with Almighty God. We read about an experience of an angel. The people of Israel, the Hebrews, had been freed from their slavery in Egypt, and they were now fleeing and going through the desert on the way to the Promised Land. They spent 40 years out there wandering in the wilderness before they actually entered the Promised Land. An entire generation came and went during that time. Only two of those who left Egypt lived to actually enter the Promised Land. All the rest had died out there in the wilderness, and their children then were the ones who actually succeeded in entering, in some cases even their grandchildren. But this is what we read in Exodus 23. This is God speaking to the people, the Hebrews. Behold, I will send my angel, who shall go before thee, and keep thee in thy journey, and bring thee into the place that I have prepared. Take notice of him, and hear his voice, And do not think him one to be condemned, that is, despised, rejected. For he will not forgive when thou hast sinned, and my name is in him. But if thou wilt hear his voice, and do all that I speak, I will be an enemy to thy enemies. And I will afflict them that afflict thee, and my angel shall go before thee. Now that passage is just a matter of three verses, actually four verses from the Exodus book, chapter 23. But it says a lot. It talks about God sending an angel to go before them. And the Hebrews are very much aware of the fact that an angel was actually leading them through the wilderness. But God says, respect him, because he will not forgive. And that's interesting that the angel will actually hold them accountable for what they do. It's also understandable that the angel would do so. Because the angel is concerned with the honor and glory of God. That's the angel's concern. And uh, when we offend the honor and glory of God, it is not up to the angel, it's not his position to grant us forgiveness. He is offended by the fact that we offend the one who loves with all of his being, and that is God. And so, when he sees us as the enemy of God, the angel with us would be in the position of the cherubim who were placed at the Garden of Eden with the flaming sword to keep us out and would regard us as the enemies of God. In other words, if we're going to make ourselves allies of Satan, we should expect that the angels from heaven will regard us as allies of Satan. It shouldn't be a surprise to them. So one, no wonder the angel that God assigns to them We'll hold them accountable. It's up to God to forgive, and only he can. It's not the angel's prerogative. The angel is there to serve, and he's there to serve God's will. And he takes that very seriously. But God also says here that if you do hear his voice, and you do hearken to him, then I myself will be the enemy of thy enemies, and I will afflict those who afflict thee. It's important for us to remember that these days now. And my angels shall go before thee. He repeats those words. Now, although we read of the angels throughout the words of <clears throat> sacred scripture, there is no mention of them in the account of creation given in the opening chapter of the book of Genesis, as I mentioned, except what St. Augustine says about the creation of light. The first we read of any angel in the book of, in, in the Bible is the angel Lucifer, now fallen and entering there to tempt us. And the next angels, we know, as I said, are the angels of the cherubim there with the flaming sword to keep us out of the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3 we read, And he cast out Adam, and placed before the paradise of pleasure cherubims, and a flaming sword turning every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So they're regarding the way actually to the tree of life. The Old Testament scriptures are filled with references and accounts of the appearances of angels and their activities in the service of God and of ourselves. Uh, Their service to God is to be of service to us, actually, as I mentioned, the angels are to be at the service of our service to God, to help us to know and love and serve God. The very name angel in Greek, angeloi, signifies, signifies the messengers. And these are the lowest of the orders of angels. The nine choirs of angels have as their lowest, and therefore closest to us, those we know as angels. St. Thomas says, we call them angels, only insofar as they are messengers to us. They're not angels by nature. They were not created to be angels and messengers. That's their task. That's their job. That's their office, as it were, that they fulfill to God. They are unto themselves pure spirits, created to know and love God. That's their nature. Their office is to communicate with us the things of God, to deliver the messages of God. But not only do these angels deliver the messages of God, they also exert their power within us and around us. And so they're actually more than just messengers. Uh, That's probably the most prominent feature they have. But they are here actually to exert their influence and their power on our behalf. Uh, We see in the Old Testament time and time again, We see that the angel seized the upraised arm of Abraham as he was about to plunge the dagger into the breast of his son. And the angel seizes his arm. And Abraham finds his arm is absolutely motionless, that he cannot budge that arm to do any harm to his son, because the angel has seized him and prevents him. And we see also a prophet, Habakkuk, In the book of Daniel, Habakkuk is going to take lunch out to laborers in the field, corporal work of mercy. But an angel intervenes and actually stops Habakkuk and says, there's a prophet named Daniel in far off Babylon. You must take this food to him. Daniel was in the lion's den at the time. God had sealed the mouths of the lions so they couldn't hurt Daniel. But Daniel was hungry, too, and God was providing for him. And so that's, again, part of divine providence. You might say an expression of the divine prudence. (laughs) They could actually send an angel to a man back in Judah, Judea, and transport him, as the angel did, by the hair, carrying him to the lion's den in Babylon, and delivering meals to him. That's more than meals on wheels. He actually transported the prophet, meals and all, meal and all, to Daniel, to feed Daniel there. And then returned Habakkuk the prophet to where he had been. So God provides, and he provides often, yet the the agency of the angels actually are there to serve. This is what it says. It says in the book of Daniel, and uh, we read, And in the den there were seven lions, and they had given to them two carcasses every day, and two sheep. But then they were not given unto them, that they might devour Daniel. So the angels, the, the lions were actually being starved. They were ravenous. They were hungry. So that they would attack Daniel and tear him to pieces. Now there was in Judea a prophet called Habakkuk, and he had boiled pottage, and had broken bread in a bowl, and was going into the field to carry it to the reapers. And the angel of the Lord said to Habakkuk, Carry the dinner which thou hast unto Babylon to Daniel, who is in the lion's den. And Habakkuk said, Lord, I, I never saw Babylon, nor do I know the den. And the angel of the Lord took him by the top of his head, and carried him by the hair of his head, and sent him in Babylon over the den in the force of his spirit." And Habakkuk cried, saying, O Daniel, thou servant of God, take the dinner that God has sent thee. And Daniel said, Thou hast remembered thee, O God, and thou hast not forsaken them that love thee. And Daniel arose and ate, and the angel of the Lord presently set Habakkuk again in his own place. And upon the seventh day, the king came to bewail Daniel, and he came to the den and looked in, and behold... Daniel was sitting in the midst of the lions, and the king cried out with a loud voice, saying, Great art thou, O Lord, the God of Daniel. And he drew him out of the lion's den. But those that had been the cause of his destruction he cast into the den, and they were devoured in a moment before him. Then the king said, Let all the inhabitants of the whole earth fear the God of Daniel, for he is the Savior, working signs and wonders in the earth who have delivered Daniel out of the lion's den. So this Agency of the angel, but to the greater glory of God and the service of the prophet Daniel. The Archangel Raphael in the Old Testament also accompanies the young Tobias on his journey. And um, so he delivers him safely to accomplish his mission, grants him a wife who had actually been afflicted by devils who had demons who had oppressed her. And it claimed the lives of the men who married her, but protected Tobias and Rodwell because they were married wholly, you know, as, as as Tobias said, we are the children of the prophets, and we are not to be merely married by lust. We must be married in God. And so they were protected by the angel who protected them against the devil's powers bringing Tobias home with the monies that were needed for the family that were owed to them, and a wife, a worthy wife. And only then was it revealed to them who it was who was the guide of Daniel. His guardian and guiding angel was the Archangel Raphael. And when this was revealed to them, they all immediately, instinctively fell down in worshiping because the splendor of the angel that they now saw was so marvelous, they really could not help but think of it as a divine being. And as the angels always did, when this was the reaction that we had to worship them, the angels always immediately corrected us, saying, I am your fellow creature and fellow servant of God. I am not your God. Don't worship me. In the New Testament, what do we find? We find the angel Gabriel appearing to Zachary, in the temple, and announcing the conception and impending birth of St. John the Baptist, which we celebrate today. And again, note the punishment that the angel inflicted on Zachary for his slowness to believe. We also see the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary, and bringing the word of God to her, and actually bringing the marriage proposal, as it were, to her that she should become the mother of the, God's own Son and our Savior. And then we have also the multiple appearances of the angels to St. Joseph. You know, St. Joseph has never quoted a single word in sacred scripture. But a lot was said to him by God. He was given directions in his dreams by angels time and time again, The angel told him, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She is not guilty of any crime. This is not contrary to the law. Rather, what is conceived of her is conceived of the Holy Ghost. And Joseph obeyed. And then Joseph was told to take the child and his mother and flee into Egypt because Herod will seek the life of the child. And Joseph obeyed. And while in Egypt the angel appeared to Joseph in his dream and said, Now Herod is dead, and you can return to your homeland. And Joseph obeyed. And the angel appeared to him and said, Because now Herod's sons have taken power after him, now you should not stay in Judea, but go back to Galilee and live there, where you are somewhat out of his power. And uh, so Joseph obeyed. Time and time again, Joseph obeyed the voice of the angel coming to him. So we see this providence of God providing, giving us these angels to guide. (coughs) Now we see the angels also in the life of our Lord, not only from his annunciation when he was conceived. We see the glory in Excelsis Dale. Hosts of angels singing joyfully in the sky, above Bethlehem, announcing the birth of the Christ child. And then we can fast forward to the time of our Lord's, the very beginning of our Lord's public life. What do we see? We see our Lord, having been baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, we see our Lord then going into the desert to be tempted. And there we see an angel, Lucifer, Satan, we see him, the fallen angel, come to our Lord to tempt him, slithering into that desert the way he slithered into the garden to tempt Eve. And our, this, this serpent, as it were, came into the desert to tempt our Lord. And again, tempting him with pride and tempting him with the riches of the world and so on. Three times the devil's temptations returned back by our Lord. And no sooner did our our Lord finally say to the tempter, Be gone, be gone, Satan. For it is written that the Lord thy God alone shalt thou adore, and him alone shalt thou serve. And then Satan left him, and the angels came and ministered to our Lord. So there we find the good angels coming to our Lord and caring for him. One of the temptations themselves involved an angel, in the sense that, Satan tempt, quoted the scriptures from the Psalms, saying that God has given his command and charge, charged the angels to care for Jesus, that they should carry him and bear him up, lest he dash his foot against a stone. That was the temptation, to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple, as it were, to tempt to see if he was the one spoken of by that prophecy, if the angels would come and rescue him. But our Lord would not cooperate with that. But again, even Lucifer, the fallen angel, appealed to a temptation which would call upon the good angels to perform a service. He's going to use that as, as an answer to his question. Who are you? Well, after these temptations were completed, the angels from heaven came and they did minister to our Lord there in the desert. In a sense... That was the only answer that, the, that Satan was going to get, actually. We see the angel coming to our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see there also in the Garden of Gethsemane, as our Lord is about to be, is being seized and taken prisoner, that our Lord tells Peter to put his sword away. Because the Scriptures have to be fulfilled. And the Father would send to defend our Lord... Twelve legions of angels, if our Lord were to call for them. But, of course, he did not call for them. Twelve legions of angels. A legion was about 6,000 in the Roman armies. So, figure 12 times 6, 72,000 angels were at the beck and call of Christ, even as he was undergoing his passion but He would not invoke their powers to save Him. And we see the angels at the tomb also. Our Lord is risen, and He's left that tomb, and the angels are waiting there, waiting to talk to the women. And they, in a sense, send the women as angels. It's as though the angels in the tomb deputized the women to go and carry the message to the apostles and Peter, as they say. So the angels of the Lord there deputized other messengers on their behalf to go to the apostles. We see the angels at the ascension, standing with the apostles, asking them, Why do you, ye men of Galilee, stand looking up to heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come as you have seen him going into heaven. We see angels also in the lives of the apostles. You read the Acts of the Apostles, you see the angels active there. In fact, the angels had everything to do with the conversion of the first pagan. You know, there was a a man, an Ethiopian servant, who was reading the scriptures, the prophecies of Isaiah, as he was leaving Jerusalem to go back to Ethiopia, To his queen and Saint Philip the deacon appeared to him and that man wanted to be baptized and was baptized. But that was unusual because the Jewish converts were very, very resistant to anyone coming from paganism into Christianity unless they first became Jewish because they believed that Christ was theirs and they had proprietary rights over him. They were called the Judaizers. They insisted that anybody who wanted, it, who was a pagan, who wanted to become a Christian, had to first become Jewish, and a follower of Moses, before they could become a follower of Jesus. So this was unusual. Perhaps this man in the chariot, early on, perhaps he was actually a member of the Jews, and that's why he had come to Jerusalem to worship. But we know this. We know there was a Roman centurion who, in the year 39, actually sent his messengers, his own servants, to find Peter and to ask Peter to come and to preach the gospel to his family. And this Roman centurion was a pagan. And we know what prompted this centurion to send a delegation to seek Peter out and bring him home with him, that this man was prompted by an angel. This is what we read in the Acts of the Apostles. This man saw in a vision, manifestly, about the ninth hour of the day, that's three o'clock in the afternoon, an angel of God coming in unto him, and saying to him, Cornelius. And when the angel had spoken to him, and had departed, he, Cornelius, called two of his household servants, and a soldier who feared the Lord of them that were under him, and sent them to Peter. The angel had told Cornelius, where he could find Peter. And then we read in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 10, verse 22, who said, Cornelius, a centurion, a just man, and one that feared God, and having good testimony from all the nation of the Jews, received an answer of a holy angel to send for thee into this house, and to hear words of thee. And so it was said to Peter to come, come. And it was then and there, then, as a result of that intervention of that angel, that the first pagan, one of our ancestors, because we're not descendants of Abraham, we are descendants of heathens, that the first pagans were actually baptized Christians forthwith without becoming Jews first. That was a breakthrough moment in the church, and one for which all of the apostles would have to meet to discuss what had happened there and what is the right thing to do. What should be required of the pagans to become Christians? That's important for you and me because we, that's our ancestry there. That's how pagans began to become Christians without first becoming Jewish. They didn't have to go through Moses to get to Jesus, in other words. That was a very, uh, let's say, milestone in the history of the church. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shined in the room. And he, striking Peter on the side, raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And the chains fell off from his hands. Now, where does this happen? In a prison. Who is imprisoned? Peter. As Peter is chained in that dungeon there, an angel finds him, appears to him. The chains melt away from his hands. Peter is led by the angel to the very door. It opens before them. They go out through the gate of the prison. They go to the gate of the city. The door opens before them. The gates open. Peter goes out. The angel disappears. The angel has delivered him. Peter goes down the way called Straight, where the Christians have gathered. They're there praying for Peter. Peter knocks at the door. The portress slides it open and looks out, and she sees the face of Peter looking at her. And she closes it and goes back and tells the others, Peter is at the door. She's in, she's rather really shocked by this because they were all praying for him because he was buried in the dungeon. And uh, they said to her, it can't be Peter, it must be his angel. See, they, they were aware of the angels there. And they were aware of angels assigned to them. So they knew Peter had an angel assigned to him. They went then and opened the door, and it was Peter himself in the flesh standing there. And they said, Now we know that God has delivered Peter through the work of an angel. This is what Peter, Peter said. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 12. And Peter, coming to himself, said, Now I know in very deed that the Lord has sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. Now, we see St. Paul also having the work of the angel in his life as well, in many ways. But in one particular way, it's very uh, telling, again, regarding the, the role of the angels. Because at one point in the epistles, St. Paul talks about the things that he'd suffered, the shipwrecks and the scourgings and so on. Actually, the reason why he did that was, again to counter the Judaizers, who were telling the Christians, look, you can't take pagans and make Christians out of them. They had to become Jewish first. And Peter was appealing to them, listen to me, I'm telling you that's not true. So uh, that's, that's Paul. Paul was telling them, listen to me, I'm telling you that is not true. And so he starts listing all the things he suffered to show them basically his credentials, why they should listen to him rather than these other people who are spreading a false gospel. And um, the last thing St. Paul gets into after listening to this litany of things he suffered was kind of the, the last straw, I guess you might call it. He was given an angel of Satan, an angel of Satan to beat him. To buffet him, he said. Why would Peter, why would Paul rather be given an angel of Satan to buffet him? Well, for one thing, no doubt Satan had a particular hatred for Saint Paul. There's no doubt about that. Because Saint Paul was doing him an enormous amount of damage in converting followers to Christ and granting them the power of the redemption. But why did God allow it? Because St. Paul asked God three times, take this thing away from me, and three times God refused to take it away. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ refused to take it away, and St. Paul himself explains. It was to keep St. Paul humble, so he would not become proud and arrogant and... um, you might say, even um, consider himself superior because of the things that he had suffered. He recognized there was a danger there. So he saw even allowing this satanic angel to afflict him, oppress him, God was still using even that angel for his own good to prevent he him, St. Paul, from eventually becoming proud and falling into the Temptation of the devil, which was pride, to make of himself more than he really was. St. Paul recognized he was in danger of that, following the devil in that temptation. And God actually used even a fallen angel to humble him and to keep him on track in his faith. So, that's, again, that's a, an interesting testimony from St. Paul about the service of even an unwilling angel, how God can use even the fallen angels to serve his purpose for the salvation of souls. So we go down through the the lives of the apostles. We come to the lives of the saints, the early saints, the life of the church, our own lives. We see all of this, and I'm going to actually skip forward here for time's sake. Skip forward. I want to come to our, our own day. And there are saints throughout history who testify to the role of the angels in the lives of the blessed in heaven, the lives of the saints here on earth. They testify about this. And I thought I would just read you a series of quotations from the doctors and fathers and saints of the church with regard to the role of the angels. And they're not talking only about the role of the angels in their lives. They're talking about the role of the angels in your life, and mine, too, what they should be. A number of these saints, quite a number of them, are actually contemporaries. Saints of the 1800s, saints of the 1900s, like St. John Vianney. Uh, The 1800s St. John Vianney, St. John Bosco, St. Teresa the Child Jesus, and so on. All of them had a very, very close relationship with their guardian angel, and so should we. St. John Vianney writes, How happy is that guardian angel who accompanies his soul to Holy Mass. And John Vianney also says, The devil writes down our sins, our guardian angels, all our merits. Labor that the guardian angel's book may be full and the devil's book empty. St. John Vianney says, If we could only see the joy of our guardian angel when he sees us fighting our temptations. Have you ever heard the voice of your guardian angel? Have you ever heard his voice? I guarantee you, every one of us here has heard the voice of our guardian angel. I guarantee you that. Every single one of us has heard the voice of his guardian angel. Because every one of us has that experience of a little child when he's reaching for something that's harmful and he hears the voice of his mother or his father say, no, no. Parents know that. They know very well what that means. They see their little toddler, their little crawling infant, on the, as he's on the floor, and he's found the safety pin, but it's not safe, or he's found something he's sticking into a hot socket, or he's ready to grab the cat's tail or something, whatever it is. And the parent says, no. Every one of us has heard that voice when temptation comes and we're tempted to do something wrong even mortally sinful and we hear that voice no we hear that voice in our mind that's not just the voice of conscience that's the voice of your guardian angel and what he's saying to you no don't do that so take it very seriously and recognize that voice and listen to him Saint John Vianney also says if you find it impossible to pray hide behind your good angel and charge him to pray in your stead your guardian angel then who is always praying in heaven will now certainly include you in that prayer and you will be the beneficiary and in a sense you will pray through him now again this is very important concept for us as Catholics Because in Catholic theology, we have the concept of this hierarchy. That God not only is God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, as three persons in one God, but in the creation, there is a hierarchy of creation. And even among the angels, the higher angels, as they say, illuminate the lower angels. So the light of God actually is passed on from choir of angels to choir of angels to choir of angels. And so God uses the angels uh, as messengers to other angels to illuminate them, to communicate with them. That's standard operating procedure for Almighty God. And so, yes, the Holy Ghost does want to inspire us, and does inspire us, but expect that when he does so, He does so through the agency of your guardian angel. Your guardian angel is here as an agent of the Holy Ghost to bring to you the words of the Holy Ghost to guide you. And you should look to the angel then for that inspiration. So when you're praying to the Holy Ghost, that prayer is certainly heard, but the prayer can be heard taken by the angel, as we say, even in the Mass. We ask the angel to take the sacrifice of the Mass before the, God, before the throne of God in heaven. We pray that after the consecration. And so it is that when you pray, your prayers are united with the prayers of your guardian angel who sees God in heaven, even now, the beatific vision. He sees what you don't, what you can't. But you unite your prayer with his. And that makes all the difference. And the answer you get... When you pray to the Holy Ghost, it comes through your guardian angel. You should realize how God operates, as it were, how God arranged things, how he providentially, prudently set up the chain of command and the chain of grace here, as it were. He uses these angels to effect his will in our own sanctification. Now, St. Patrick wrote this, I bind to myself today the power in the love of the seraphim, in the obedience of the angels, in the ministration of the archangels, in the hope of resurrection unto reward, in the prayers of the patriarchs, in the predictions of the prophets, in the preaching of the apostles, in the faith of the confessors, in the purity of the holy virgins, in the deeds of righteous men. So you, see, you hear here in the words of St. Patrick himself, already about the year 430 or so AD, so long ago, even going back to the time... Even basically close to the lifetime of St. Augustine, you hear St. Patrick talk about invoking the angels, the archangels, and down through the ranks of the holy souls. And he he realizes there that God works through them. St. Anthony of Egypt, the hermit, says, "...you should know that there is present with you the angel whom God has appointed for each man." This angel, who is sleepless and cannot be deceived, is always present with you. He sees all things and is not hindered by darkness. You should know, too, that with him is God. That God is there with him and in him. St. Anthony of Egypt, we're talking about the earliest days of the church, even during the days of the persecution of the empire. And now we fast forward to the time of the 1700s, St. Alphonsus Marie Liguori. Who says, Our prayers are so dear to God that He has appointed the angels to present them to Him as soon as they come forth from our mouths. The angels, says St. Hilary, now in the early days of the church, even a contemporary of St. Athanasius back in the 300s, St. Hilary says, The angels preside over the prayers of the faithful and offer them daily to God. This is that smoke of incense we read about. The prayers of the saints are the incense rising before the throne of God in heaven, offered by the angels there. St. John the Apostle saw that in the book of the Apocalypse, chapter 8. The angels offering the incense before God in adoration of him, the incense being the prayers of the saints. So from the beginning of the church's history until this very moment, even until the future moment of the Apocalypse, we see the agency of the angels around us and within us. How more aware of them we need to be. How more united with them, explicitly, not just haphazardly, casually, oh yeah, we've got guardian angels, in a sense, so what? No, it can't be like that. We need to appreciate the significance of these angel guardians God has given us. They are a great treasure, they are our greatest friends. And they want us to have what they have, and that's everlasting life. They want us to have the vision of God in heaven. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote about the angels very, very often. He says, God is humanity's universal teacher and guardian, but his teaching to humanity is mediated by angels. And uh, also, now we're talking about the Middle Ages here, we go forward now to the Renaissance time of St. Francis de Sales, who says, since God often sends us His inspirations by means of the angels, we ought frequently to offer Him our aspirations through the same channel offer your aspirations through your angels to God. Call on them and honor them frequently, and ask their help in all your affairs, temporal as well as spiritual." We have voice after voice after voice, and my plan was to read all of them to you, because it is overwhelming, this testimony that goes on and on and on throughout the history of the Church, year after year, century after century, testifying to the presence of the angels and the closeness of God. St. Robert Bellarmine, All the works of the angels and the inspirations they impart are also accomplished or granted by God, for ordinarily these works and inspirations are derived from God by means of the angels, and the angels also in turn give them one to another without delay, and so they come to us. St. Robert Bellarmine, Is there any greater happiness than to imitate on earth the choir of the angels in heaven? That's what we do when we pray. We join our voices to the very choir of angels in heaven. We have a testimony of Saint Basil the Great in the three hundreds, of Saint Bernard Clairvaux of Clairvaux in the eleven hundreds, Saint Teresa of Avila in the fifteen hundreds. We are not angels, but we have bodies, and it is madness for us to want to become angels while we are still on earth. But our Lord says to us that in heaven we shall be as the angels are, even now. St. Francis of Assisi, in the 1200s, Poverty is that heavenly virtue by which all earthly and transitory things are trodden underfoot, and by which every obstacle is removed from the soul, so that it may freely enter into union with the eternal Lord God. It is also the virtue which makes the soul, while still here on earth, converse with the angels in heaven. That is a detachment from worldly material things. Again, St. Alphonsus Ligori talks about the moment of death. He says, The powers of hell will assail the dying Christian, but his angel guardian will come to console him. His patrons and St. Michael who has been appointed by God to defend his faithful servants in their last combat with the devils. They will come to his aid. Imagine coming to your death when the angel of Satan is there to do everything he can to get you to despair. All your lifetime, the devils have been determined to prevent you from being concerned about your sins so that you will not repent. So you'll be guilty of presumption But at the last moment, the angels of Satan will completely turn on you. And instead of trying to prevent you from repenting, they will now bring in full force upon you the awareness of your sins in order to get you to turn from presumption to despair, thinking, there is no hope for me now. Imagine at that moment, then, you are a stranger to your guardian angel, that you are a stranger to your own guardian angel who has been with you from the moment of your conception till that very moment, for that very moment, and you don't even know him. Don't let that happen to you. Really give some serious thought every day. Don't just pray that prayer, the guardian angel prayer, briefly let it kind of bolt out of your mouth and uh, disappear into into nothingness, into oblivion. Be aware of your guardian angel and ask him for help. You know, we talk about the Holy Ghost wanting to inspire your prudence to know what you are to do and how and when, to know what you are to say and how and when to serve God. It is through your guardian angel that that information comes to you. It is through your guardian angel that the Holy Ghost will inspire you to know what that is. And so the the virtue of prudence requires you to go to the angel your guardian angel, and to ask him to guide you and inspire you. That's what he's here for. He's here to guard you. He's also here to guide you in the decisions that you make. St. Vincent Ferrer in the 1300s said, Let us be like the holy angels now. If one day we are to be in the angelic court, we must learn how, while we are still here, the manners, we must learn the manners of the angels here. St. John Chrysostom, 400s. When, when Mass is being celebrated, the sanctuary is filled with countless angels who adore the divine victim immolated on the altar. Your guardian angel is one of those there. And your guardian angel sees what you do not see. He sees the Son of God incarnate there in that host. And in that chalice, and if you could unite your, your prayer and your mind, your heart, with the guardian angel, your guardian angel, what he had have to say to you, what he would have to communicate to you, but the significance of what you're both witnessing there, him in his way and you are yours. St. Basil the Great, beside each believer stands an angel as a shepherd leading him through life. Again, St. Robert Bellarmine, the, those closest to God in heaven, the seraphim, are called the fiery ones, because more than the other angels, they take their fervor and ardor from the intense fire of God himself. St. John Bosco in the 1800s, When tempted, invoke your angel. If he is more eager to, be, to, to help you than you are to be helped. Ignore the devil, and do not be afraid of him. He trembles and flees at the sight of your guardian angel. At the sight of your guardian angel, the devil himself is terrified But power he has to protect you. Unless you yourself put yourself in Satan's power, that's a decision that you have to make for yourself. But If you make that decision, and you place yourself in Satan's power, you basically, in a sense, have fired your guardian angel. That's a big mistake. Of course, the angel will still pray for you. He still cares. He still wants you in heaven. But if you put yourself voluntarily in Satan's grasp, you've limited your guardian angel. As to just how much he can do for you. And Pope Pius X said, If the angels could envy us, they would envy this. They can assist at Mass, and they do. When you and I assist at Mass, or offer Mass, the angels are there with us, and they are there at Mass. But there's one thing the angels cannot do. They cannot receive Holy Communion. Angels cannot receive Holy Communion. An angel could come to the children at Fatima and carry a host from a tabernacle to give to them. The angel could administer that host to them, as an angel did. But the angel could not consecrate that host. He does not have that power. God did not give it to him. Nor would the angel have the power to receive the host. That is something, a privilege exclusively accorded to human beings. God made man will come to man. So even the angel in heaven could envy us one thing the angel has a beatific vision, that they can have that union with God, which is so beautiful and so perfect. In a sense, that puts us in a, in a very unique situation with regard to the angels, because we know that the angels have a great love for God, and we know that they love God with all their powers of loving. And according to nature, Mary, human as she is, is of a lower nature than the angels. But according to grace and her love for our Lord, she is far above the angels, according to grace, because God has raised her up. And exalted her so high because of her loneliness. She has been raised so high, loving God as she does so greatly. And the angels might think about this woman now, this mere mortal human being, Mary, and in a sense envy her that, that she can love their Lord in a way they can't, that she can love Him as her own son, as a mother loves her own child. The greatest of the angels cannot love God that way. They do not have the relationship with Him, but she does. And so when it comes to us, they do not have the relationship with Him that enables them to receive our Lord in Holy Communion. So in that sense, even our angels could envy us when in the state of grace we worthily receive our Lord. There is so much more, and I always make this mistake of trying to treat or treat, as though it were a whole course on the subject. So I'm going to put it aside for the time being, but I, I think the message becomes clear. In these days, we need prudence. We need to know, by divine guidance, we need the divine guidance to know how to negotiate the world and all of its evils, all of its rapids, its white water, its rocks, and all that, all of the hazards of the world around us, especially the way things are going now. And we need to receive that through the agency of our guardian angels. So prudence tells us that we need to appeal to the means God has given to us, to know His will and have the strength to do it, our Lord's personal presence in the Blessed Sacrament, the power of prayer, raising our minds and hearts to God, and doing it in conjunction with our guardian angels and being very much aware of the influence of the angel in our lives and asking more and more of that divine influence through our angels to actually take control. We realize the devil will take control and he will possess somebody who's willing to be possessed. And you and I might say, O oh Lord, take possession of me, take possession of my heart, take possession of my will. Well, God respects our free will. He will not take possession of you and take control of you, but he will, by grace, provide all you need to serve him well and save your soul. So as much as we would want to be completely in the control of God, that's a matter of our choice to do so. Ask Almighty God to give you the grace to make that right choice, continually, day by day. Now, I realize uh, we're running a little late here, I'm sorry. The next thing on the schedule is, let's see, we have at 11.30, Benediction and the Glorious Mysteries with the Angelus. And that is coming up, let's see, where are we here? Very soon. I did want to address these questions. I hope you don't mind if I do very quickly. Why is it so easy to get into hell and so hard to get into heaven? And uh, I think the answer to that is because of the pride of life. The pride of life is what fell to Satan. He saw his own glory. He was so enamored of his own glory. His message was, what more do I need? God was asking him to humble himself He found it offensive to his glory, and he would not humble himself. What was it that was the glory of Mary? Her own lowliness, she said. She didn't exalt herself, she humbled herself. And she embraced her lowliness, and God was able to exalt her. The trouble is, because of the pride of life, every one of us has to go through this, as it were, a test, to see whether or not we will submit to Almighty God or not. Those who will exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who will humble themselves will be exalted. But we have to overcome the pride of life, and that's the first great and the ultimate great challenge for every one of us. So in that sense, it's very easy for us to lose our soul, and because it's easy for us to be proud, and it's hard for us to humble ourselves, and that's why it's difficult to get to heaven. What does our Lord say? Broad is the way that leads to hell. Eternal perdition, perdition, and narrow is the way that leads to life. Many are the way who go the way to hell, and few there are who go the narrow way to life. Our Lord once talked about a gate, a gate that led into Jerusalem, a gate that was so, so narrow that the camels laden with their supplies could not get through the gate. It was called the eye of the needle. And our Lord said that a rich man who is attached to his riches will have more trouble getting into heaven than a camel getting through the eye of the needle. So there you are. We have the pride of life, the concupiscence of the eye, possessions, and the concupiscence of the flesh, impurity. All of those things are militating against us because... Well, the devil caught us in his own trap. Um, what nationality was Job in the Bible? I heard two sermon. Uh, what is it, opinions. He was a non-Jew of the Old Testament, and he married Jacob's daughter, Dinah, who converted him. Um, and if the form of opinion is correct, how did Job know about the true God of Israel. Well, when I, I don't know, I, I, I'd have to go back and reread the Book of Job to, to find that out, and, and read the commentaries. I'm sure Cornelius Alapide, a great commentator of the 1600s, would have an answer to that question. or would tell you what the fathers had to say about it. Um, but it could very well be, uh, according to a tradition, that Job married. Uh, Dinah, that is, Jacob's daughter. We don't know. One thing we do know is that he knew of the true God. And we shouldn't be surprised that in those days, that even among the pagans, there was a certain knowledge of the true God. Remember, Abraham himself uh, had to be converted, as it were, to the knowledge of the true God. So if Abraham himself came from what prior to that had been pagan stock, as it were, so, um, it could very well be of Job and probably was, but somehow he was given a knowledge of the true God and worshiped him as best he could at that time. Um, I don't know exactly the era when Job lived, but there was Melchizedek, as you know, and the whole list of the, of the patriarchs before. And again, they were like diamonds shining in a dark world, because they maintained belief in the true God. So it was true of Job. Uh, But I intend to research that myself. Can you please recommend a book by St. John Bosco, or another saint, on how children can live detached from the world? Well, that's a very specific question. There are a list of things that St. John Bosco wrote. He wrote some pamphlets and so on uh, during his lifetime that were published, to advantage for the people. I know that he wrote about a bit about the preventive system of discipline. I'd have to go back and check the list of things he wrote. I don't know specifically one just targeting that particular question. Actually, I think his whole life is an answer to that question, though. Reading his biography would be an answer to that question. Um, there are also multiple volumes. I think sixteen volumes of his memoirs that are published. The Salesians make them available. They'd be very a good addition to a library. So, uh, Father Jenkins, would you have some time? Oh, to meet? Yes, we did. And uh, following Father Greenwell's advice, he sent some poor soul uh, to me. How can you be happy in heaven if you wake? If you make it? If your child didn't make it? It's hard for us to imagine because our love for a child is so great, but when we are in heaven and we see Almighty God for who He is, all other loves will seem as nothing. All other loves will pale in comparison with our love for God because we will see that the goodness of God. And that will be the, the love that orients all of our, our entire soul. It's as difficult as it is for us to imagine that if one of our children went to hell, we could ever be in a position where we would, it would not satin us. We will, when we see God, understand everything. And we will appreciate that a man will not love any of them more than he loves God. As our Lord said, if anyone loved father, mother, sister, brother, son, daughter, more than me, he is not worthy of me. Well, in heaven we'll understand the greatness of God's love and how worthy he is of love. And all other loves will just evaporate before that. Um, let buried see. Who buried Adam on Mount Calvary? And was he buried there before or after the flood? Well, apparently, uh, I mean, it's I think common wisdom that uh, Adam died before the flood, and um, that uh, he was buried there, no doubt, by his offspring, because he had children, as you know, who would have buried them there, him there, on Calvary. That's why. That's what that skull represents. At the foot of the crucifix we have, sometimes you see a little skull there that represents the tradition that the cross stood over the grave of Adam. What is a recommended book for understanding the three persons in the Holy Trinity? Well, you could read the, 12, the fifteen books of St. Augustine. Uh, no doubt they are, they are translated into English. St. Augustine wrote fifteen books on the very subject of the Blessed Trinity a recommended book for understanding the atonement from the Catholic perspective, well, I think St. Alphonsus of on The Passion of Our Lord would be very important to read. Uh, Were dinosaurs real, and were they a part of God's creation according to the Church Fathers? Uh, I don't know that the fathers actually commented on the dinosaurs, but they certainly did comment on the book of Genesis talking about nature turning against us. Uh, did dinosaurs coexist with human beings? The answer is yes, they did, actually. Um, there are records <coughs> uh, in human history even depicting dinosaurs. Does God give every person the sufficient grace to die with a perfect love for him? Or is it his will for some to purify their love for him in purgatory? I think the, the actual Dominican answer to that question is that yeah, God does give sufficient grace <clears throat> for everyone to, in the course of his lifetime, come to a perfect love for God. But Sufficient grace <clears throat> is, is adequate. Efficient grace overcomes all obstacles. And there are only so many who actually, in fact, do come to love our Lord, to love God with their whole heart and mind, soul, and strength in this life. But is the sufficient grace there? Yes, it is. Do you have any books which you would recommend on Catholic fatherhood? Well, you know, I don't know that uh, in the history of the Church, uh, from ancient times there were a lot of books written on how to be a Catholic father. I think at former times it was pretty well understood. You learn to be a Catholic father from your own Catholic father. And I don't know that we needed manuals to instruct people how to do that. In our own day, we do. I admit that. We do. And so, if you found a good Catholic marriage manual, it would probably deal with that question on how to be a good father. But I can't think offhand of a specific book that is directed specifically to that question. Now, some of you might know of such a book and might have read it and recommend it. And you can also bring that to our attention. But I don't No one immediately offhand. I know some traditional priests have written books about family life, which are certainly worth reading, but specifically about how to be a good father doesn't come to mind immediately. If we use our interests to know, intellects to know truth, and our wills to love goodness, which faculty do we use to enjoy beauty? The answer, both of them, the intellect and the will, come together in enjoying what is beautiful. Did sanctifying grace exist in the Old Testament? How could a soul be prevented from entering heaven if it had the divine life living within it? How could God repel a soul when he saw his own image and likeness in it? Well, sanctifying grace did exist in the Old Testament, so could be um, justified from sin by believing and hoping and loving in the coming Redeemer, as God prophesied. And so Abraham was our father in faith, because he had faith. He believed in the same Redeemer you do, and I do, before he came, though. He believed in that prophecy, and he was there to serve God's, God's plan. Um, so yes, we we always think of Abraham as being in the state of grace and dying in the state of grace because of the fact that he was justified by his faith in the coming Redeemer. Um, so um, how how could a soul be prevented from entering heaven if it had the divine life living within it? Well, it, it wouldn't be if it had the divine life living in it. With sanctifying grace, maybe you're saying, saying that If Abraham died in the state of grace, how could he be kept out of heaven? Well, the gates of heaven were closed against us because of original sin. And the only way to remove that was by uh, the death of Christ on the cross. So only when Christ's death on the cross was effected was the redemption accomplished, and only then could anyone enter, enter into heaven.